Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Old West Highwayman Bill Miner, known to Pinkertons as the Gentleman Bandit, is released in 1901 after serving 33 years in prison. He goes to Washington to live and work with his sister's family, but the world has changed while he was away, and he just can't adjust. So he goes back to Canada and returns to the only thing familiar to him, robbing stagecoaches and now trains. And that is the backstory behind this terrific film that's been restored, a 4K restoration of the film, um, and it stars Richard Farnsworth, and it is a great film called The Gray Fox, and we're very fortunate to have with us today the producer of The Gray Fox, and that would be Peter O'Brien. Peter, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. This is so good to see again. I saw it. I'm loathe to admit how old I am, but I'm going to, I'm going to give it away. I remember it when it came out. It was a beautiful film, a wonderful performance by Richard Farnsworth, and so many other things about it. Tell me a little bit about how you worked together with the director, Philip Borzos, and how all of this came together. Philip, at a very young age, made three short docudramas, really, um, in British Columbia. Each of them was shortlisted for the Oscar, and the third one was nominated. And so he had an opportunity among people, investors, I guess, in British Columbia, uh, he was encouraged to make a feature film. He had grown up in the same town, railway town, where Bill Miner had robbed the Canadian Pacific Railway <laughs> um, uh, 80 years before. And so this story was very well known to him, the story of Bill Miner, the gentleman bandit. And so he wanted to make that picture. Um, I came into it once that had been decided that he wanted to do that. And um, together we brought in uh, the screenwriter, John Hunter, and it went from there. Tell me a little bit about the relationship he established with uh, Fort Francis Ford Coppola. Well, what happened there was we, Philip had wanted Harry Dean Stanton. I, I, I know we don't like to talk about roles that other actors did or didn't play or that kind of thing. We were very, very fortunate um, in this story, I'm just going to tell you, to end up with the right guy who was Richard Farnsworth. Harry Dean Stanton was, uh, Philip had uh, met Harry Dean and talked to him about doing The Gray Fox and um, he liked Harry Dean because Harry Dean was an elegant ballroom dancer, if you can believe that. And uh, there's a scene in The Great Box uh, where uh, Miner and Kate dance against the uh, mountains of the Kootenai. And it's a beautiful image. And uh, that was one of the reasons. But Harry Dean, when it came to the timing, when we were ready to make the film, and at that moment he was just starting One from the Heart uh, with Francis, uh, Philip and I. Uh, went to LA and Francis's producer, Fred Roos, helped us uh, with uh, his casting director to um, replace Harry Dean Stanton. And um, the result was we met Richard Farnsworth, 
and uh, realized that he was the perfect actor for the Gray Fox. And then just, just to go on afterwards, when the film was finished, which took about two years, including the editing, we went back and met with Francis Coppola and thanked him and so on and so forth and asked him to present the Gray Fox. In the end, he and his guys decided that they wanted their company, Zoetrope, to do that presentation. And so it ended up being uh, Zoetrope Studios Presents. So I want to underscore just how beautiful this film is. And one of the reasons for that is obviously the work of Frank Tidy, the cinematographer. As a producer, are, is, is, his, is him being on, on board with the project part of a decision-making that you are involved in? Is it Philip? Is it you? Is it, is it all of you? How do you bring together a team like this to, obviously everybody's important, everybody's key to making it look and feel like the movie you want to make, but how does that work? Well, uh, my point of view on producing is that in, in cinema, unlike, unlike in, in television, I, but in cinema, the author of the film in creative matters is the director. And if you are trying to bring forth a film of integrity that has specific meaning and holds together, you want to make the director's film. And um, Philip, you, you can suggest things and you can nudge and, and help, but he uh, wanted Frank Tidy and he wanted Frank Tidy for a particular reason. Frank had uh, shot, was the lighting cameraman, as the English say, uh, for Ridley Scott, uh, Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelists. And Ridley used to, I, I, I don't know if he did in the end, but he was his own camera operator. So he looked through the lens, but Frank lit it. And so beautifully with, with kind of soft light that perfectly works for British Columbia and perfectly works there for, for the Gray Fox. My job at a certain point was to, was to hire him, <laughs> was, was to get him. And, uh, and he was, uh, you know, glad to do it. And um, he had on the slate, you know, the clapper board, you know, Philip had a slogan on the slate and it said, every frame a Rembrandt. Uh, again, that uh, Rembrandt, there is no hard light source. The light sources are, are, are soft, even the key lights. And that's the way the gray fox is lit in a kind of natural way. It's beautiful. It is such a beautiful film to look at. And just as a sort of cinematic reference, and I've heard people describe the film, and it, it does bear some sort of uh, visual and even thematic themes with uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is a film that is often compared to one of um, Altman is maybe my favorite film director. So I love his look. I love the way he did it. And I, and I feel like this film is very much in the keeping with that. But I would also compare it to Heaven's Gate. It reminds me of Heaven's Gate quite a bit as well. So if people are familiar who are listening to the sound of our voices, those are the films that it reminds me of. It, in, in also in its authenticity, not only just the look, but also this, the way in it you, you were able to really make it feel and look like you would imagine it would look like in that period of time. Is, is that fair? Yes, it is. And uh, <clears throat> Philip Borsos was the kind of filmmaker who wanted things to be authentic and um, to the point of wanting to shoot scenes in the exact place they happened historically in 
Bill Miner's gun. We found it and used it in the film, a Navy Colt. We tried to get various uh, things as absolutely as accurate as possible. The same applies to the trains, trying to, the period trains, um, trying to, which, which were a big part of the film, trying to get those exact um, rolling stock and bringing it in from various places, uh, which, by the way, has to go on the back of a train after the caboose because you can't put a, a period piece of equipment in the middle of a train where it could pull apart on a grade. That would be a disaster. Oh, that would be. <laughs> so that, that, that made it just that much more uh, difficult. But Philip very much uh, was a stickler for, for authenticity and historical accuracy. Uh, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with uh, Peter O'Brien. He's the producer of The Gray Fox, a film that is now being released through Kino Marquee. It's uh, as a 40... 40- What's the anniversary? Are we, we, are we on a particular date for the anniversary? 40. Shot, it was shot in, in uh, uh, 1980, so 40 years from its production, but it was released in 82, so 38 years from its release. Yeah, and it, it's a beautiful film, and it's a period piece about Bill Miner, a man who was in prison for 33 years, who was released into a whole new world. He's released in 1901. And the world has changed dramatically from the time that he went into prison. And he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with his new life. And it goes from there. Let's talk a little bit about the actor, Richard Farnsworth, how you think his performance captured Bill Miner and also expanded in sort of the themes of the film, what a man out of time, a man out of place themes, as well as others. Let's talk about his performance. Of course, his eyes, um, just to start with his physicality, uh, was uh, marvelous and so right for the film. He, of course, was a, a cowboy, um, really a movie cowboy. Um, he came from Kentucky, but most of his career was in uh, the movies, and he was a movie stuntman. He could drive a six-horses uh, stagecoach, a six-horse stagecoach, and he did all those sorts of things. But he decided that he, the way he said it was, the ground was getting pretty hard. Uh, he had to fall off horses all the time. He decided he was going to be an actor, uh, and that way he could still be in the movies, get paid more for saying lines. His first line, he says, was, the stagecoach leaves at noon. Then he went on from there. <laughs> but his, his restraint and his gentlemanliness, his courtliness, his gentlemanliness, his, his grace very much fitted the character of Bill Miner, who was, as, as you said earlier, uh, nicknamed the Gentleman Bandit. Richard Farnsworth had this same kind of grace, the same kind of manner to him, which made him so right for the part. And he was played this with restrained elegance. And even though he was capable, as you see in the film, of defending himself uh, violently and uh, and robbing trains and sticking guns in people's faces and things like that. He always did so with a sort of twinkle and with humor. And, and, and that was Richard too. He was, he was like that. So it, he was just the perfect guy. He really is the perfect guy for this role. And just again, to give a little bit of a litany of his performances, uh, um, you would have seen him in The Natural. He's one of the, he's the assistant manager uh, in that film. 
Uh, also, yeah. Resurrection, he plays an important part in that wonderful film. The Straight Story, a David Lynch film, that really was in some ways kind of a capper to his career. He was nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in Straight Story. And what, was he not nominated as well for, uh, for The Gray Fox? Uh, no, he wasn't. He was, oh. um, he was nominated for Golden Globe Award, and we found out later, you know, I, I don't really know what goes on behind the scenes in the Academy Awards, but in those days there were five nominations, and he ended up being sixth. Oh. At the Golden Globe Awards, he was in the five. <laughs> so, so we were... Uh, we were sad about that for him um, because that would have been great. He had been nominated for um, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in a film called, called Comes a Horseman um, with Jane Fonda and Jason Robards, Alan Pakula. Had already had that on his resume, which is quite amazing. People forget about it. He honestly, his bearing, the way he, he, he spoke and, and his look, you're talking about those beautiful blue eyes of his. Um, he could have played a serial killer and you would have liked him. I mean, I don't know that he could have done anything. Well, I'm sure as an actor, he probably could have figured out a way to be something heartless and horrible, but nonetheless, he, he was just that guy. He felt like Bill Minor, you know, Richard Farnsworth, that they would, they, in another life, right? Bill Minor. I mean, that's how, how good he was in this film. We wait, Philip, Philip Porzos wanted him, like Bill Minor, to have a, a beautiful mustache and um we only cast him quite late in the proceedings and uh at that point he didn't have a mustache so he had to grow his mustache really fast uh <laughs> he did it but um he ended up with a beautiful one and um looked like minor well there there's his mustache right there and it's like <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in terms of your career in, in film, uh, how did, what did The Gray Fox mean to you and sort of uh, in the trajectory of your career in, as a producer and being involved in filmmaking? What's oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, uh, I don't usually ask, you know, get asked about my career. I get asked about the films themselves. But um, I had done um, some low-budget films. One of them, in fact, was a funny little film called Love at First Sight, which was Dan Aykroyd's first film, Saturday Night Live, in its first year as one of the not ready for primetime players. And um, he was in New York for three days and then on our set for four days for a five-week period. I'd done some other uh, smaller films. I had met Philip Borsos the previous year. I was a line producer on a on a quite a substantial film shooting in Vancouver, and Philip was the the guy from the Directors Guild who you know was going to uh, have a chance to be on the set and watch what was going on. I guess like an intern or something like that. I had to approve that, and so he came to see me about being uh, an intern on the set of this film, and he had. Uh, about 10 demands. Um, he wanted a car to, to, to drive to set. He wanted to make sure he had meals. He wanted to have his own uh, person come with him. Not exactly assistant, but, you know, someone, a companion. With no sort of rights whatsoever, he was already demanding, and, um, and uh, which is an important uh, characteristic. 
feature of a director, I think. If they know what they want, they've got to go and try to get it. And then the following year, when he started to do this film, The Gray Fox, he called me and said, uh, I, I remember you and I think you, you would uh, be right for me as I do this picture, my first picture. I had great admiration for him and the short films he had made. And so I jumped in right away. Uh, I had to leave uh, my I'd leave Toronto for about a, you know, a year and a half to go into it. <laughs> but I, it, it, it's the best film I think that I've ever been part of. It's the, it wasn't the easiest. It wasn't even the most fun in the sense of it being so hard to do. But there's no doubt it's the, it's for me my, you know, my special one that um, now is being seen again. I mean, you can imagine what a satisfaction that is for me. Absolutely. I don't want to get too far into the weeds of the film in terms of like what happened on set. But there's a couple of scenes. Uh, one in particular struck me uh, was the scene where there's a train on coming around sort of the bend and they're, they're rounding up horses. I don't know if they're rustling. I can't quite remember if they're rustling the horses or not. Yeah. And then they, yes. and those horses start to spill over onto the, off down the side of the mountain. And for yes. just watching it, I thought, my God, that looks dangerous as all get out. I don't know if that's even close to accurate or not. Yes, it was very carefully orchestrated and rehearsed. As you can see in that scene, Richard Farnsworth himself is riding. And there's no way of hiding a stuntman in that scene. It has to be him. And, of course, he wanted to do all his own riding in the film. but. Uh, as you can probably guess, insurance, uh, film insurance doesn't want <laughs> the leading actor to be uh, in a dangerous position, but he was, and um, uh, it was arranged and designed that the horses would go off the tracks at that particular point. But one of the very difficult things is, and uh, we've had a lot of laughs over this over the years, is what about take two? <laughs> to get the horses back up, you have to get the train way back up and around the track. And actually, that is take one. <laughs> and it's multi-camera. There really wasn't any other way but to do it as one deal, uh, other than coming back again the next day. And uh, the film wasn't that big a production. That, that would be uh, a very easy thing to do. So it sounds like you, you had everything covered in terms of sort of the shooting of it. So whatever it was, it was going to be what it was. But boy, yes. it looked dangerous. The, the other performances in the film are very good as well. I don't, you know, while Richard does an amazing job, everyone, there's a sort of this stoicism of, of the, about that time in our, in our history, Canadian history. Uh, we were just coming out of a period of time when there was the, the massive gold rush into the Yukon in, in Canada, right? So there were a lot of people that were prospectors, Bill Miner was able to cover his tracks was as, a, as a prospector. So it brings in a lot of really interesting and compelling history, as well as a look, a feel. A lot of Canadian actors don't get a big run here in, in the lower 48. And <laughs> so uh, it, it does, so it, it's, it's good to see. Uh, I, I, there's, there's a certain feel and a vibe to Canadian filmmaking that I, when I see it, there's this, there's this sort of a genteel spirit to it that is, and I'm not saying this is across the board, I'm sure there are very, you know, lots of different variations in Canadian filmmaking, but 
but there's a certain, yeah, just a, a, a vibe from it. And I, I got that vibe, whether I'm right or wrong, I got that vibe from the gray fox. Oh, uh, well, uh, as we said earlier, I think uh, the, the vibe you're getting is uh, absolutely Canadian. We, uh, some people like to call this film a Northwest, a Northwestern and uh, uh, rather than a Western. <laughs> One critic the other day, I think, called it a northern. <laughs> so, yes, it's got that. But in addition, as we were talking about, minor, that fits minor as well. The gentleman banded. <laughs> yeah, the gentleman banded. That's right. So, so that really works. The idea of the lady photographer as his, um, uh, as the woman he meets in this uh, uh, December romance, because the film is also a romantic film, a love story. That has a certain kind of Canadian aspect to it as well, I think. Uh, you know, a suffragette woman. Right. And let's mention Jackie Burroughs, who plays Kate. In the film. And she is so, she's great. She's really, uh, really good. She, her opening scene, she's, yeah, the suffragette, we sort of establish her as the suffragette in the first time we see her in the film. And then, yes. but then this romance blooms between them and that sort of opens her up, that sort of uh, aggressive tone that she was taking with the newspaper editor. It's completely diffused by the time they, you know, their romance is, uh, is taking hold and just a very wonder, nice performance. Uh, the, the sergeant, Timothy Weber is terrific. There's a whole bunch of people in the film Everybody, I'm just looking through the list of people that are in the film, and uh, it's just a, it's a film that will also take you back to a, a, the vibe of, of the filmmaking from the, from the 80s and early 90s. It sort of, it, it has, it has, the, it just has the bearing of a film that, you know, you know, a terrific film from that era. And I mentioned the McCabe and Mrs. Miller and, uh, you know, certainly other films like that. Uh, I, I think also the the um, the era you're talking about, um, the turn of the century between the 19th and 20th. Uh, there, there there is, and, and we've talked about this a, a a little bit of a comparison with um, our times now, uh, or let's say uh, over the turn of the into the 21st century. There was a transition. Uh, back then, into the 19th century, the railway, of course, we had just got across the continent, electricity, uh, and all, all the uh, uh, and all the machinery, and the uh, new uh, way of communication into the telegraph uh, was uh, a new thing. Well, we, see just, the, we see the automobile also in the film, right? The first. The automobile, and, and also just to mention it, because this is actually one of the interesting features in the film, we see cinema as a new thing. The Great Train Robbery, which had an effect on, on Minor. From it, he decided, oh, I, well, I think I'll rob trains instead of stagecoaches. That was an enormous transition, and there, there wasn't another one quite like it till the digital transition of the 90s and 2000s. And, 2000s. and so, so there's a, a way of a way of sort of relating to the situation these characters were in. It was a new world. It is. It's all of that. And you must be so very proud of the fact that here we are, 40 years later, people are going to have an opportunity to see it on a big uh -huh. screen or in a big screen format. Uh, again, Kino Marquis is, is putting it out in virtual theaters. And it's also a way for you to support local theaters who have been devastated by the um, COVID-19 pandemic. 
Uh, we need to support local theaters because it is uh, no better place to see a film. That's the way it was intended to be seen on a big screen with other people as a shared experience. And to see The Gray Fox, even if you're sitting in your living room with your family, it's a film you will remember. Thank you very much, uh, Mike, for that. Uh, I, I am proud of it. And um, <clears throat> just as a last thing, one extra value for me is that the physical negative uh, after 40 years starts to, ha had already started to deteriorate. At a certain point, the film would, you know, have been lost. Uh, certainly, uh, it would never have been able to be revived to the beautiful detail that it has been now. So that was just in time. And so that's a, a, real, a really, really wonderful thing as well. That's wonderful. Well, we've been talking with Peter O'Brien, the producer of the film The Gray Fox, and it's, it's an honor to have you on to talk about this wonderful film and also to be able to, to have some time to really talk about it, to talk about all of the different aspects in the production as well as the, the film itself. So I really appreciate your time here today, Peter. Thanks so much, Mike. All the best. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.